We want to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible. Duke Walker of Movement Mortgage is a highly experienced loan officer. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer, a new agent, or a seasoned agent looking for a trustworthy and reliable lender to expand your network, Duke is your guy. He makes sure to touch base with his clients throughout the mortgage process and return calls, emails, and texts promptly. Duke knows what needs to happen to get your clients to the settlement table. Loan Officer Duke Walker, NMLS number 1022556, Movement Mortgage LLC supports equal housing opportunity, NMLS number 39179. For licensing information, please visit www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. More information about our sponsors can be found in our show notes. And of course, thank you to our listeners for giving us an audience. This is Keyed In with Max and Brent, unlocking the minds of the industry's top real estate professionals. And now, here are your hosts, Max Rabin and Brent Jackson. This is Keyed In Podcast. This is our fourth quarter 2022 medley. Some of the greatest hits from all of our guests in the last quarter of 2022. Listen in. Christopher Ritzer and Christiane Weiss joined us, two top-level experienced producers. You began your careers in a very different era of real estate for the city. Like this, the, the DC in the 1980s, I grew up here too, right? DC in the 1980s is a very different place than it is now. For sure. And there are a lot of people who are, real estate is different now. I mean, technology has brought in so many new types of ancillary businesses, real people who are interested in the business that probably wouldn't be interested in it because they have other skills that they can add to our world. So from the perspective of a a couple people who have been in this business for so long and when when the, the business itself was smaller, what would you say about like maintaining and or curating this group of of clients that you have like how would you tell a younger agent now getting into the business to develop a a client list like this that you have i'll let you take that one well i think it takes a long time yeah i I mean at least and i don't think that there's any way to short circuit Mm -hmm. hard work and I, i just think you know in my case I could recommend somebody have four children and put them in four different schools. <laughs> I, I, will ta- see, I will take that advice. And get that in and get involved in those schools and get involved in the community through whatever passions you have that are non-for-profit and enjoy them. Enjoy all the opportunities that you have to become part of your community. That's certainly where, you know my network was developed. And then, of course, I was really lucky in having an absent, still do, a husband of 40 years who is a an extrovert. And mm-hmm. so together we have, you know, a, a, a pretty robust social life. And so I think at a certain point, if you work really hard at whatever your metier is and you try to be of the highest integrity And I believe in ultimate discretion. I always refer to us as house doctors, that we just don't, we don't talk, you know, outside of the interaction that we have with our clients. They, and they feel that we're telling the truth, you know, and so people are open and honest with us. And that ability to be yourself, you know, if you're a client and to unburden yourself at a time when, this is vulnerable for people. You know, houses and condominiums and residential real estate is a an area that 
evokes emotion. It's a huge investment of energy, of vulnerability, and the ability to let down your guard with the professional who is representing you is an integral part of that journey. And so in terms of it has nothing to do with building your network, but in a way it does Mm -hmm. because becoming invested in community with real heart and being your authentic self in whatever you do usually does come back with with some reward you know and and if the reward is relationships with people then then that's what matters in real estate you know is is real relationships and that hope to help people and that people respond to to authenticity and sincerity, I guess I'd say. Jamie Manning from Exposed Brick joined us for a third time. She is an all-star guest. We love Jamie. Yeah, it's trendy, it's dramatic. Yeah. Uh, but I will say, I mean, I think people are always going to be interested in real estate and want to just look like so many people are like, I have a Redfin problem. Like I go on Redfin way too much. And there are things that I post that I'm not I'm never sure how it's going to perform. Like I posted that $1.5 million one bedroom condo in Calorama a couple weeks ago. And I was like, this is a total, you know, farce. I'm not going, nobody's going to really want to look at this. But then people were like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. So people still like to look at like the outrageous stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And real estate is always sort of, it's on people's minds. We know this from our doing this business for so long. It's always an easy topic of conversation with people. It's so, traffic in real estate. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So on this topic of trending through the different interactions you have with people on your Instagram and your mm-hmm. blog, what what's on people's minds right now? Are people are people still asking the same kind of questions to you or have, has it dropped off or are they asking new types of questions? Yeah. So it was interesting. Actually, somebody sent me a DM last night surprised because I posted a three bedroom house in Petworth for like seven seventy five, And he was like, wow, I bought a two bedroom condo in Petworth for the same price a year ago. Um, and he lives in, I guess, a townhouse that was converted into three units. And so he's been talking to all of his neighbors and they're all like, wow, we, we're not going to be able to sell for a really long time. And so I think there's going to be this sort of unique shift where people are going to maybe grow out of their spaces, but not sell them and try to rent them. And then those people are going to rent their next place, which so that's kind of what we were talking about, which I was like, that is interesting. Yeah. Rob Sanders of TTR Sotheby's International Realty popped in to talk about our changing market. The prices haven't gone down, really, in my in my opinion, at least. And I want to know what you think. You know, have the, are are we just sort of calm? Are they going down? Uh, are the buyers in that position to negotiate that much, or is it still just you know you have some negotiating power? But let's not think that we're tanking into you know going down with pricing. The ultra low ball. Right. Exactly. Right. A couple of things that that you've touched on that I think we should talk about. One, I I really don't think the pricing has really hit rock bottom, right? I think there is still room. And I wouldn't blame a buyer, right? What's wrong with it becoming a buyer's market now? It's been a seller's market for two years. We need to normal to normalize, you know, let's get back to, you know, maybe 50-50. If I meet with a buyer and they go, I want to go in and take off a hundred thousand dollars off, you know, the, the price, I'm fine with that. I encourage it. Because in the end, 
I don't know what the seller's going to do. Good example, there's a $2 million listing on now. I just submitted for my buyer 1.8, 200,000. The agent called me back and says, I don't think we have a response for you. And I put, you don't think, or does the seller not? Have you spoken to your seller? You at this point are a glorified clerical. You can't call me back and tell me that you don't think. Let the seller tell me that he can't think. You know, he doesn't want to do it. So right now, as Max just said, we have an open line of communication. It hasn't ended. Both sides are talking right now. We're going to move up and they're going to come down. But I would not discourage a buyer from submitting. If you have a buyer out there, hold on to them. Get that offer in and let's see what happens. And they're all of the mindset. You have agents out here that are spoiled, that will not write, and I can name a few, which I will not, but that will not write under the asking or will not write 100000 off because they don't want to be bothered. They want to mm -hmm. go on vacation. They want to enjoy the holidays. They want to do whatever. Well, you're a different kind of agent, right? You enjoy real estate and you want to sell. You're there to represent the buyer at the best possible fiduciary responsibility that you can do. In this case, the buyer wants to come in 100 or even 200, write the offer, find out what happens. But it doesn't mean that it's going to end up like Max just touched on, you know, the one in Penn Quarter over and over and over. But that's where we're at now, right? It eventually closed and kudos to you, but do what the buyer wants at this point. Dana Rice is a mega agent with Compass in the D.C. area. We have a marketing person, the designer, listing coordinator. We have a part-time listing coordinator, does all of our initial you know, startup and signs. And we have a runner and, and we use Compass's uh, transaction management. So we have one dedicated TC who just does our business. And that's been, that's been a real game changer as well because it's already there. They know all the systems. She's virtual and she just manages all of that stuff. I can't believe the difference in my business when I finally stopped thinking about, did I call the title company? You know, right. did they drop the check off? And instead of me worrying about those things, I now can worry about the bigger picture, which is, you know, working with the clients, holding hands with them, that sort of thing. I always use the analogy, it's like a doctor's office. I would be afraid if I walked into the doctor's office and the doctor was checking me in, and then the doctor works as the nurse and the PA, and then no, the calls the insurance company. Calls the insurance okay, company. Okay, I'm like, so stealing that. Because... But it's like I'm the I'm the doctor. I'm here to like do the surgery, and then like we have a team of people to help support us to get you to the next level. Lori Collins is best known as at DC City Girl on Instagram. You probably already follow her. Along that same line, you know you've dealt with some copyright infringement where real estate agents or people in the business kind of steal your photos from for their listings. Can you go a little bit deeper into that? Yeah. Like right before the pandemic, especially, I was scrolling through Facebook and all of a sudden I saw a sponsored post on the side of my you know, feed and it was my picture. <laughs> Like literally a sponsored post. Right. Sponsored post. So I'm like, that's my picture, yeah. you know? And I, you know, I mean, I'm not a professional photographer where I earn my living on this, but, you know, that is my work. Right. And, you know, I've spent years cultivating a successful brand and social media presence. And, and I saw my picture there and I'm like, what? And so I, I looked at it and, you know, of course... The photographers here in D.C. that are, you know, our friends and everything, we start talking about it. And they said, you know, this is, you know, you shouldn't do this, copyright, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I started, you know, I told people to take it down and they didn't. 
Wow. So I ended up hiring a lawyer. And because it ended up being like, I, you know, I started going down rabbit hole mm-hmm. looking for um, people who were using my photographs. Mm-hmm. And I realized that they were using my photographs a lot. Wow. Okay. Wow. And on their websites, on their ads that link them to reservations or link them to open houses or, you know, like, or they're to their realty company. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I'm an engineer. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. yeah. So I hired a lawyer, and sure enough, they really went after them, and and told them to stop. And and granted, I mean, I I mean, I was sort of flattered, but not. You sure. know, I mean, they're making money off of you know my work. Right. I mean, it's it's one thing. If and I hadn't given permission, mm-hmm. it's one thing. A lot of people feature my photos, and I have no problem with that. You know, credit me, tag me, fine. But in my feed, in my comments, I get a lot of them that say, you know, can we use this for marketing? D- define marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, so I always just ignore them because marketing means they want to use my picture to make money. Right. Right. And, and are they giving you money back? Yeah, no. <laughs> so not. we ended up settling, you know, all four entities that I, that we went after. And, and it happened like, like I said, like right before the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of lucky monetarily because then everything kind of shut down, you know, sure. even real yeah. estate, hotels, travel, mm-hmm. people who were taking my pictures, right. you know, were like stuck. So, yeah, it was, you know, and and like I said, I went down a rabbit hole. Um, You can go on Facebook and go to these hotels or go to these entities and go into their ad sponsors and you can see all the ads that they use. So I was taking pictures of my photos Mm -hmm. in their ads. Wow. Melanie Hayes is an experienced top producing agent in D.C. and she recently joined the Hider team at TTR Sotheby's International Realty. It's like I would wake up in the middle of the night just absolutely like terror and fear and sweating. I'm like, I only have like so much cash and I only have, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen. And as good of a relationship as I have with my parents, we did not have like I'm not going to my parents for money. That's not really the dynamic we we have. And in particular, because it was my idea. I did not consult with them. I did not really have their buy-in. I decided to do it completely on my own. That was not, it's just also really not like how it was. So I, I had to, I had to figure it out. And there was it, there was a lot of there was a lot of tossing and turning and sleepless nights and sweating and years, like the first couple of years, it was very, it was very challenging. So June, 2012, do you remember when your first deal happened and what price point that was? Yeah. The first deal I think I had was a condo. I actually just sold this condo. It was at the Lincoln. It was for four, 400, I think. Um, it was a young woman. I met her at an open house and that was probably, that was probably like two or three months later, but at the time when I joined Sotheby's, my split was 55%. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was, I was so happy that I had a deal, but it really was not giving me a lot of oxygen. Like I still really needed to kind of keep going. And I think one thing about the business is like, 
it's not a one for one business. It's not like you put in two units of work and you get one unit of like compensation. It's like you're doing the work all the time and the compensation comes when it comes and the deals have a timeline of their own and people make decisions when they, when it works best for them. And so it's like, you just kind of can't work enough. You can't cultivate enough business in my opinion. So what were, so those first two years you said were very uh, challenging. What were some of the things that you would do to overcome those challenges? I think always being in action was the best thing I could do to negate some of the anxiety. So like being at the office, trying to do an open house, even if it was someone else was going to be at the open house, like, may I please come with you? Hearing how other people spoke to the clients and what they concentrated on. And that's really where I give, you know, I think I had a little bit of an advantage while I had no income coming in, but Michael Moore was so good to me that I could just come with him to appointments or be in the car with him when he was on the phone. And I learned how he spoke to clients and I learned what was important and what aspects of the contract were most important for the client to be aware of. And I learned how he connected with the title company and the lender. And then like what portion of the transaction was really my responsibility and like what the agent on the other side was responsible for in the title company. You just kind of like learn how the whole transaction comes together. And I think that's not a book smart kind of thing. I think that's like going through the transaction is really how you, how you learn how it all works and the pace and, you know, all of the nuances to the. He was definitely your mentor. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And he has huge influence on me. Yeah. Right. And, but you, so even though you didn't have a specific you know, business partnership or obligation, he was like kind enough and your friend to do that with you. And it's like, it's tough to be a mentor, right? It's yeah. And I think that like the longer I'm in it, the more I realize it is really tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I think generally you're so focused on the next deal and cultivating the relationship to take time and talk to someone else. It is, it's a huge, it's a huge deal. And I really again, realize that now I got to say, yeah. didn't mean to cut you out. I'm just really realized that now. Cause like working with Jonathan Taylor, who I still work with to this day, I did the same thing. I was working for like, you know, 10 bucks an hour, but you know, when I first started with him, but I would sit next to him mm-hmm. and just listen to him on the phone. Yeah. This is before emails and all this stuff. So it's invaluable. Yeah. Right. And then ride around the car with him, go on appointments. And now when I have younger agents or people who want to get in the business, they ask me like, can, can you be my mentor? And I'm just like, I got my TikTok, you know, <laughs> I think it also has to be something that's like organic too. I think someone's like, Oh, can you be my mentor? I think it's kind of like, yeah, it, it has not. to be a little bit more organic, like the personalities kind of click or jive or like just the way that things are happening is like, you're naturally in close proximity to each other. In my, in my opinion. Bootcamp training with the best. Listen to Ben Roth. And so a lot of people always ask me, they go, what would you tell anybody? I'm probably jumping ahead for you guys, but what's kind of your original advice going to these new agents starting out? And my advice always to them is, listen, don't just jump in as a full agent right away. You really need to get your feet wet as an assistant, learn the process, team up with a good agent that knows what they're doing that can teach you all those ropes Mm -hmm. and go from there. And it'll just organically grow your career over time if you do it the right way. So that's how I started. And 04, I've been here ever since at Washington Fine Properties. We did take a one-year sabbatical, I call it, to go somewhere else for a year that didn't work out. And so I've been there WFP ever since. Yeah. How long were you under Bill Moody? About six weeks. I was was going through his boot camp for about six weeks. And I was like, this just may not be the right fit for me. And I love Bill. I mean, Bill's a mentor to me today. He helps us through a lot of different problems, processes, et cetera. 
I learned a ton from him in those six weeks, but I've continued to learn from him throughout my career. Well, I'm just curious. So you, you call it a boot camp, but was it literally like, this is my training program? Like, this is how I'm going to train you? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And Bill has produced a ton of successful agents. If you really look back, he's sure. gone through that training program over time. HRL's done phenomenally mm -hmm. at WFP. He's yeah. like the uh, Bill Belichick, right? The, the coaching tree starts there and then it just sprinkles throughout the industry. That's right. And I would say all WFP management is like that in a way. Uh, they all have their own different ways to teach and grow the agent's careers over time. But learning from Tom Anderson, Dana Landry, they're all owners of WFP, Mark Chappelle. They're all great in their own different ways. And it's been a huge boost to my career over the time. Is there one secret that you can share with us that really was a game changer during your six weeks of training under Mr. Moody? Bill's all about details. And you learn details quickly with Bill. And you, if you don't get the details right, he'll call you out on it. And that quickly made me focus more on everything over time. What like what what details? Like details about the clients? Details, <clears throat> about, details about the clients. These are calls coming in. Yeah. What time did they call? What did they ask for? What did they need me for? What is the problem? You know, he wants yeah. you to preface everything before he gets yelled at on the other side of that phone, possibly. What is the is issue? And you're kind of on the front lines of that. So, you know, listening to him speak with clients was really beneficial and how he problem solves, right? Where someone's coming at you from one way, and he can shift a little bit around to figure out the problem and how are we going to fix it? Because ultimately, that's what you're there for with the clients. You need to, you face problems every day, right? Absolutely. We're, and so you have to figure out how to overcome those. And I think Bill's really good at that. When to roll out as a new agent and year one as a sole practitioner with Seth Williams. I think it was when I had multiple friends reaching out to me. I could always file it under his umbrella and he would kind of mentor me through the transaction. but. At some point, you realize you've learned enough and it's time to just push yourself out of the nest. I plateaued in that position to where it was just, we were both just on a plateau. So he needed to change things up. I needed to change things up. And once I had, you know, four or five friends in a week reach out to me about buying a property, I'm like, okay, I think I'm, I've gathered enough. I mean, I spent 10 years behind the scenes. So eventually you just have to push yourself out of the nest and get going. Agreed. What about as you're building this new business for yourself, just on your own, do you, are you finding that you have a niche or are you trying to develop a niche? I think, I mean, I think with any agent that's just starting off, it's first time home buyers are really coming to me a lot. Maybe the, the people that are the same age group as me. So it's the people that are just starting to have kids that also need to move into a larger house instead of the town home they're in. I don't think I'm aiming to do that. I stay pretty open to help anybody with anything, but it seems to be the smaller families and first time home buyers that are coming to me. So I'm of course going to run with that, but so you spent 10 years working behind the scenes and then working for a top selling team. So you've had definitely enough time to spend in the real estate world to figure out what works, what doesn't work. If you had to go back to year one, would you have done anything differently? It's a good one. I don't think so. I might have moved a little faster into working for myself. Confidence was a thing that definitely kept me down imposter syndrome a little bit when you're first starting off or when you're transitioning from a team member into an individual agent. It's just, I think everyone can get in their head. I would have probably stopped that and changed that into pushing myself out of the nest a little earlier. I like that. I like what you say, like imposter syndrome, because you're, you're seeing these people who are uber successful. They're like right in your immediate sphere. And you're, you're thinking, it, it, you know, is this, could I, am I really like this person? Can I be that too? 
And yeah, to, I, to be honest, I still think this way. I, I still do. I'm like, you know, I, I not trying to sound like arrogant or anything. It's like, I know I have success in this business. Right. But there yeah. are some times where I'm like, am I just lucky? Did I just get lucky again on, you know? I, t yeah, at least weekly, or sometimes it's certain clients that bring it back into your head. And yeah, you're around people like Rob and Brent who are pumping out, you know, I don't even remember what you all hit. Like, what was it like to, Right, right, just shy of 200 million, but he has no problem saying yeah. that. Yeah, it's like, that's just too, yeah. It's, yeah. But you've got to keep your ego in check, too. It's like last night at 10 o'clock, I'm out at a listing appointment showing like it's a studio in Southwest, it'll be $200,000. What you know, it's we get a phone call for <laughs> there's your sign spot. of the market right there, Seth. <laughs> yes, I guess I guess I'll be taking a rental, so I'll meet you at 11 p.m. No problem, right? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, and then being around like Robin Brent and they're uber successful and then coming down to Chafe and his huge luxury homes you're walking around, there's a soccer field downstairs in the basement of a house with two soccer fields out in the back, there's an airplane landing strip in the backyard, like. It just, and at me at 23 to 29, it was, yeah, it was a lot to take in and a lot to, you know, am I going to be able to do this? Can I keep up with it? But I think that's one thing a lot of people don't talk about starting out real estate, especially at Sotheby's. You see uber successful people and you really have to get your mindset correct before you're able to perform like you want to. So this is a sports analogy. I'm a huge sports fanatic, as most people know, but I think you uh -oh. play to your level of competition, right? So it's like if you're yeah. running with the best of the best in D.C. and in uh, Atlanta, it's just it's going to roll off to you, too. You're going to you'll be confident enough right out of the gate because you've been doing it for so long. Yes, you might have a, a little bit of fear, but everybody does going into it. But again, you're going to play to your level of competition. So if you're with the uber wealthy, walking around the you know the uber wealthy down there in Atlanta, you're going to be able to have confidence to go and say, I just sold this. I just listed this. That's how we did it. It could be a $5 million property, but it's, it's in your jack of trades. You can do it. Yeah. And I tell a lot of people, I compare it to people with super successful parents, maybe. Um, but on a professional level, you, you, you want to measure up, you want to be able to make them proud in a way you want to, to be able to compete at a higher level because that's all you've ever seen. And, you know, people are watching that, but at the same time, you have to give yourself a little grace and, and back off of all that. And remember you're starting at square one regardless. So you just finished year one. Is that correct? August. Yeah. August. So how was first year all by yourself? I mean, I loved it. It's, it's something you have to get used to being your own boss, keeping yourself in check. You don't have Brent with his Excel sheets coming at you to, to make sure you're staying in line. So, but I did love it and I was pretty successful. I think I've almost hit 15 million and in Atlanta, that's, that's a pretty good number. That's really good. Good. Yeah. It's not 150, which is what Chase hit last year, but I've never tried to hit what he hit. I'm just competing with myself. Yeah, it takes time. I mean, it's a it's yeah. a process, and it's just there's things build on each other, and you know, what what else can I tell you? It takes time. And I think the other thing you you just hit the nail on the head. You're only in competition with yourself. I mean, you can't look to the left or the right and see what someone else did or is what they're doing because all you can do is stay in your lane to control what you can. You can't control what your competition's doing. Yeah, and it surprises me every day how much it really tree branches out everything you've started from. I get different leads from different clients that I've forgotten about sometimes or that we've helped. And yeah, I just try to keep my own head in check and keep it moving.
Do's and don'ts in social media with Gabrielle Pro. This sounds crazy, but I was hosting. My goal was 10 times a week. And it was, it's not all real estate. Yeah, it's a lot. lot. Yeah, I definitely don't do that anymore. But I have noticed when I've looked at the data, the more hosting I do, the more leads I'm getting, the more business that's coming. And it, at first I thought like, it's going to really annoy people. But people love like, they feel like, they're your friend when they see you on social media and they will come up to you like they know everything that's going on in your life and you it's not as reciprocated because you're not seeing that you're not seeing as much as them as they are of you and it i had i strategically do it like one out of every three posts i'll try to make it about real estate and then put in you know i have two cats so everyone loves cat photos everyone loves now i have a kid people love babies um or even just like a cool photo. I'm at a coffee shop today <clears throat> at a buyer appointment, like tag that coffee shop, just anything you can think of. You just post it and, you know, telling a story about it or uh, people just thought it was so cool. And so I kind of got comfortable doing it. So can you quantify your social media? So you said a lot of your business comes from there, but can you quantify like five deals or 50%? I struggle with this because I, I never know, like, you know, is someone, did they see a post and then that thought that, you know, that thought went through their head, like, oh, let me reach out to Gabrielle. But I would say if I stopped doing social media today, I honestly think my bit, I would do 30% of the business that I'm doing now. Wow. So 70% you're attributing to social media. Totally. Yeah. That's impressive. I think it's Facebook and then using, I use Instagram, but mostly like stories just so people can see more like raw footage day to day and it still keeps me top of mind okay so let's i want to recap all this because obviously you are a firm believer in social media and social media works for you however you're doing it so you said you started with you were aiming for 10 posts a week you were primarily facebook right primarily 2017 ish yeah 2017 to i mean yeah you're still using facebook totally yeah okay yeah, I post really anywhere from two to four times a week, but I focus more on now quality versus quantity. Sure. Really, you know, if I just sold a property, I I try to add like a personality aspect to it. I think like stories are everything and people don't just want to see like, oh yeah, they just sold that. That's cool. But it's like, we do so much for our clients. Like what was, what was the story? Did we get the multiple offers? Is the, you know, how did we do? And in this now crazy market, like people want to see one, it shows our personality. It shows what we're willing to do for our clients, it shows how much we care. So I try as best I can with the time I have to keep like a personal spin on everything I'm posting. Yeah, that stuff works really well. And I sometimes I feel like in my own personal social media stuff, I feel like compelled or inspired by what just happened to create a post like that. But it does take energy. Totally. And yeah. and so to, to maintain the focus on that, you know, we've talked to um, a local blogger here a couple of times, Jamie Manning. I mean, she has to keep to a really tight schedule to keep her energy focused, to keep that blog maintained or else it just it falls just apart. Yeah. Or you get distracted, start scrolling through your Instagram totally. or your Correct. Facebook and yes. you're like, man, I logged on here to post and I haven't even done it. Now yeah. I have to go to this thing. How to throw a client appreciation party with Michael Moore. We had a client appreciation party last night, nice. which was daunting, you know, to do a big event like that. How many, how many folks came? We had about 200. What? Wait, what? Yeah. Uh, 
That's huge. It's huge. We did it at the Anthem down at the wharf. Oh my God. Yeah. Can you and share about the, no, the details can't. of that? Can't, can't tell you, you anything can't. about that. No. Top secret. This all be on Instagram. It'll be on Instagram. <laughs> Betsy used to be a wedding planner. So she knows how to do stuff like that. Important detail. Well, you know, caterers and this and DJs and decoration. Exactly. Whatever. All of that stuff, you know. So, you know, she was, it wouldn't have been for her. Well, Penise is pretty organized and she loves doing stuff like that too. But Betsy kind of did all the grunt work that put all of that together. But during that and then client gifts and all of that stuff. So, yeah, it was really stressful. From like the very beginning though, like did you guys do a paper invite or a evite? We did a paperless post. Paperless post. Yeah. So we, we created a list of clients. I already had a list. Right. You know, sphere of influence and I have my past client list and all of that. So we did paperless post and we started about three weeks ago. You know, and the great thing about paperless post is that you can follow up and you have a tracking yeah. and I can right. go in and I can look and see who's responded and all that. So we did that and did you call the because we're in a process of planning our party it's october 13th but we sent the papers post yesterday and now it's like i'm telling the agents on our team you need to call email or text to let them know just to be on the lookout for the papers to post. rsvp to rsvp yeah I, I didn't i mean i called a couple of people because it was ambiguous you know they said they were going to be there but they hadn't responded you know rsvp and that but for the most part you know i didn't assume that I didn't want to beg people to come to the party. It's like, here's a party. It's going to be great. You can come or not, you know, and it, it worked out perfectly fine. There were plenty of people there for me to make the room and, and go through the room and say hello to everybody and introduce myself to Panisa's clients and all mm -hmm. of that. I was exhausted last mm -hmm. night at 930. I was like, we started at six mm -hmm. and uh, we said six to eight, but we made sure that the caterers and everything was there until nine. And then by the time I got home at 1030, I was like, Toast. Toast. I was toast. I hadn't eaten. I didn't eat. Yeah, because you were talking. No, because I was, could never yeah, stop. You know? Yeah. So so my question uh, to that is, because we, we've talked to, obviously, dozens of agents on the show about do they do client events? And, you know, some of them are like, I, I would, like, I think Joe Himley said he'd rather put a bullet in his <laughs> He just said, he was like, I don't like it. And he does other things. You yeah. know, he's now doing, like, walking tours and stuff. Yeah. But do you enjoy doing those events or... Well, this is the first one I've ever done. Oh, okay. This is the first time I've ever done this. But this is, you know, people have, Holly Worthington has said, you have to do client, you have to do client appreciation parties. You have to do something for your clients. So like, oh, don't tell me that. Yeah, you know, you. but Panese was, said, we have to do this. And I was like, okay. When we had Betsy. So it's like, I didn't have to take on the responsibility of making all of this happen and watching it turn into, <laughs> you yeah. know. So I said, okay, let's do it. So we got together and it was a lot of work, prep work and, you know, yeah. went down to there and walked the event space and decided where this was going to be and met with the caterers and all of that stuff. And it was just, it was a lot of work, but I mean, it was great. It was a great party. Sounds like it went over really well. Yeah, it went over really well. Did you guys have sponsors? Yeah, we had two sponsors. Two sponsors. Yeah, we had a settlement company and we had a loan officer. Loan officer. And then can you tell us roughly how much you spent? We spent, we spent a little over 20. That's with the sponsors? Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We spent, we spent over about 20. Our budget was 30. We went in. And the, the surprising thing is that we had a certain budget for the bar because it was an open bar. We like. That's expensive. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't. Okay. Oh, really? It wasn't. I mean, we budgeted eight for the bar and it came in at 2,500. 
I wonder if they did per drink because we just got our budget back and it was fifty four hundred for the open bar. And I was like, let's scale it back to like beer, wine, and like. Well, I uh, I depend on what night you do it. Also, wouldn't you say? You said it was no, last, I think it. I was think it yesterday. Had, you said it was Tuesday, Tuesday night. Tuesday night. So yeah, I mean, you're going to do it like Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I just my clients aren't. Yeah, they're not big drinkers, and Paniza's clients are not big drinkers. We didn't have big drinkers, but I mean, you never know. Yeah, you um, have that option. But we pretty much had a no holds barred bar bar bar. It's like whatever you want, we got it here. Could do. You know, so we tapped into the Anthem staff. And their bar facilities, so they provided us with two bars. So there's full bartenders and all that. What we really kind of focused on was the caterer. You know, I'd say, like, yeah, I want to make sure that the food is excellent, and they were great. RSVP and the client gift. What was that? It was candles, scented candles, branded. <laughs> well, I'm I'm a big candle guy. Yeah, they, you know, it's a huge wrong. hit. They, I mean, they, yeah. So we had we had black and white, and they were two different, you know, fragrances, and they nice. had our branding on it. And locally made, you know, so the vendor that we got, she was at the party because she makes them and all of that stuff. So we try to kind of stay local and, you know, small business sourced and stuff like that. New construction with industry leader, Trent Heminger. Um, I just wanted to jump back in and encapsulate what you were talking about with your business now. So yes, when I think of you and I know other agents think of you, they think of new construction, new condos all over the city pick your location. You're working in Columbia Heights, DuPont, Logan Circle, everywhere, everywhere. I see your name, Trenton Co. So how do you maintain such a huge roster of developers? Is it just a few developers that are doing all these projects? Are you finding the projects? I want you to talk a little yeah. bit about all of these. Assets. I think that's a great question. First of all, it's a great question because again, I'll go back to like 09. So by the time we were in like 2011, probably 11, 12, and 13, you know, 14, probably like you get the developers and they use you. And they're like, basically in a nice way saying, I can't use you anymore if you don't bring me a deal. Right. And it took me a long time to say exactly what I say now, which is I know how to analyze the deals. I know how to make sure you don't overpay. I know how to, but I don't need a dime for those, but you pay me to get, make you money in the back end, And what you want, are two different agents. You need to find a special, you know, someone that specializes in finding off-market deals. But by the way, then you need to call me to make sure that they're invest that they're not just invested in selling that deal because I don't I mean, I turned down I have developers I probably 50% of the deals minimum really probably 65-70% of the deals that I look at for developers they don't buy because I'm like you're crazy. So, but 100% I remember sitting basically in back in the day at the Sotheby's office and one of the very big local developers basically just said that to me. And he was, by the way, had known, been known to work with another specific agent for a long time. And I was like, okay, so you're not loyal. This is, so to so just as that's my flashback to say, just like our resale business, almost all of our developer business is repeat and referral. I mean, I would say it all is. I told my agents, this is a couple of years ago now when we were having a bad little slow period of like, you know, probably six months. I can't remember. I said, here's the deal. Do you know how many new construction projects are out there with agents that don't know what they're doing? If the market really slows down, we will knock doors on those projects. We never have. Hopefully we never have to. The only reason I would ever do that, and by the way, we have no intention of doing it. That would create weight. That'd be way way too much organization on Trenton Co.'s part. And uh, if I said it, DM would have it organized tomorrow, but I would not show up. Mm-hmm. So, but what that said is your first, just like first time home buyers, 
they're so nice. They're so sweet. They're so appreciative. So are first time developers. So usually they're my favorite often. It's either the ones that are first time or the ones that are super seasoned on our team because they are Trent and Co trained. And I don't mean trained to make my life easier. I mean trained because they're we're preventing lots of issues in the future. So if that answers some of your questions, you can ask me more though. So within when you're handling, I'm assuming even right now you're handling different developers and different projects at the sure. very at the very moment. So, you know, given the fact that you have all this business, how do you, uh, you know, say you get a new 10 unit project, how, what's your role from meet from, you know, of course, the developers calling yeah. Trent, but there's no way that you can do, you know, 20 projects at a time and handle everything, you know, the follow up with agents, the meeting with clients, the buyers, all everything. So do you assign a specific agent to be your sort of right-hand man for that yeah. specific project? And how do you decide who? Okay, so this is why this week is very stressful. Deanne's on vacation. This is no lie. People do not believe this when we tell them. But Deanne handles, like, we sell 30 projects a year, which, give or take, we probably do. We do. We, besides Deanne and myself, handle a minimum of probably 25 of them on our own. So and it was just uh, what was it sorry laura i can't remember when laura started exactly i actually i do it was actually it'll be two it we it does well she had a baby so that's why i can't remember the whole time frame point is it was in 2021 no 2020 20 that doesn't matter point is like for years Deanne hi, and i finally was like this is ridiculous like you cannot do this all on your own so we finally hired a contract to close but like just a couple of years ago and until then Deanne did it all so she was easily doing like 100 plus new construction and by the way managing our team we i mentioned we have three staff including Deanne, who runs it like the staff reports to her. They don't report to me. Actually, they don't even let me on the calls. We have they have weekly calls. I think twice a week. And every so often, I forget and I call in while they're on. And it is Corey who runs my marketing is over there looking, shaking her head. They don't like me to get involved at all. And by the way, I'm fine with it. I'm not, I'm not a control freak at any by any means as long as I know it, someone can handle it. But yeah, yeah so give good a proper question. shout out to Deanne to Deanne Lanning. Yeah, yeah she's, awesome. she's your she, number two. Yeah, she really is. She's amazing. But you know, I can't shout out to Deanne my number two girl without my other girl, Kevin Gray. So love you, Kevy. Oh, Kevin so, Gray. I, yeah. I, 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 Kevin is still there. It's amazing. He's yeah, just as mature as always, if you know what I mean. So yeah, definitely. The, yeah. And, that, and honestly, going back to the new construction, but off like that's So we divide it though. And I have for years. So if it's a resale client, like Deanne doesn't touch it. So that's it. Like she's my new construction. All my developers know her. Like I was on a, a zoom call yesterday that we presented for developers we do it um a couple times of, at least at least a couple times a quarter she you know she wrote all my notes for me etc of course i didn't really read them but you know she makes sure i'm very organized when it comes to all of that but when it comes to our resale business she knows we have it because she's in charge of the staff and the staff is the one that's doing the marketing etc but that's completely separated and that is primarily kevin um Unless it's in Maryland, and then it depends on where it is. Mary Noon on my team, who also is my neighbor, who's amazing. She runs most of our Bethesda business. Yeah. And we have a lot of agents in between that do a lot of stuff for me, and they're awesome. We have a great team. Love it. Building and running a team with the dynamic duo, Mandy and David. Okay, let's talk about your team some more. Let's talk about, you know, people are always listening to our show. They're wondering about starting their own teams or joining a team. How many salespeople are on your team right now? So 
we ebb and flow. I'm going to say we ebb and flow between about 12 to 20. And I think that, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like, it's like shoes, you know, sometimes like the <laughs> shoes feel really comfortable and then you walk around in them and then, the they're like, like and then they're like uncomfortable or sometimes you're like, oh, those are so pretty, but they're going to hurt my feet. But then they end up being incredibly comfortable. And I think some people want to sell real estate and they're not that good at it or they're, you know, the fit with the team. So there's always a little bit of, you know. So you'll bring on some, you'll bring on less experienced agents who are just beginning or do you have a criteria? We, our criteria is our gut. Okay. Honestly. Yeah. We've, and we've tried to put some systems in place to sort of help us stay out of the, the first level of discussions with people. Cause I mean, if we like somebody, we're generally like, yeah, let's give it a shot, you know? And so sometimes having another person to have that convert, that initial conversation and sort of gauge how they feel. And then it just allows us to have a few more discuss, like data points to have a discussion surrounding what to do with the person. So we sort of have a gentle recruiting, which we're happy to to talk about. But a lot of times people come to us and I think like people who've never sold real estate before, like it's a hard like people are like, oh, I want to sell real estate because I want to have my own schedule mm -hmm. and I love HGTV. And you're like, well, that's not I mean, right. <laughs> yeah. you I saw Bravo, that, right? whatever that show is on Bravo. <laughs> yeah. All, all and and you're you just like, share the three listings and then they buy something well, and exactly. then it just smoothly gets to self settlement. I mean, we do it over drinks. Like it right. deals done. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Don't and my jobs, favorite is the flexible schedule because we're like by flexible schedule. You work all the time. Sure. Um, <laughs> but I think that you know, we found people in the service industry generally make really good real estate agents. That's so true. Like bartenders and waiters because they customer service and they work terrible you know. hours. Right. They work when everybody else is off, which is so similar to what we do. Yeah. So I think they make generally good. So that's been some of our recruiting and, you know, like other agents who are, you know, right on the cusp of doing a great job, but maybe just need a little help. And I mean, you know, David said, you think you could be a lone wolf agent today. I don't like, I don't see how anyone can be a lone wolf agent based on the pace that this world moves in and that people want to want everything now. And I think like it's, it would be close to impossible for one person to give them the entirety of the now in a, in a consistent manner while also having any time for themselves or family or whatever it is that you like to do. So, so going into the, I guess, administrative side of, of your business, like how many admins and is there like a hierarchy, like a, a COO or managing director? I've seen some people been called. We have a director of sales who helps us run the team. So helps, as David was saying, like recruiting, agent training, anybody that comes to us, whether we've recruited them or whether they've reached out to us, definitely interviews with at least two other agents on the team and our director of sales, and then generally one of us. And that's like what he was saying, just like a gut check and layers of like, is this person, you know, I think the culture of our, of our team is really special and we want to protect it. Like, you know, you know, having one person that loudly complains, as you know, can sort of turn the table sometimes. So um, having multiple layers of people interview them. So we do have our director of sales once they come on board, she helps train them, mentor them. We do have a mentor program, but she sort of like oversees all that. And then just, you know, a daily question or problem or whatever. She's sort of the first layer. Um, we try not to get involved mostly in like the little scuttle of the team. And then you have marketing, listing coordinator, contract to close. So we have listing 
So we have contracts to close, and then we have our chief of staff for the two of us who sort of helps run the business. So she kind of, we have different marketing people that do things like on a ad hoc basis, ad hoc basis. Like our social media person is part time and not local. And we have a designer who will do stuff for us on a contract basis and stuff like that. So, and then a like just a person to run around and like a handyman-ish. Right. Do you guys have an ISA? No. No. We have explored it in the past and we keep like going back and forth with it. And I think we just haven't either had the like bandwidth to like sit down and be like, this is how you have to do it. But it hasn't worked for us and we continue to talk about it. But I mean, we've had a person try it. And then sort of when the pandemic happened, we sort of went in. I mean, she was a salaried employee. We went in a different direction and then everything, of course, picked back up. And then we didn't need the ISA because everything was rolling. You know, it sort of didn't. We we try to meet the business where the need is. And I think a lot of like newbie agents that come in and don't have anything to do is a great like ISA. Like, here's a here's a list of 20 people. Right. That's smart. Yeah. yeah. 10 Square Development with Max and Beck and what they're doing in the marketplace as developers. It says you basically, you know, when you're entering a partnership with someone, you're, you know, you're basically married, but you're not having sex. So, right. <laughs> I, right. I actually, that's, guys, that's kind of genius, actually, because I think a lot of people get into business together in, you pick your business and they don't really know who they're talking to. And they haven't, they haven't really thought it through. They think like, well, you have this skill and I have this skill, let's just do it. And then they mm-hmm. end up like completely screwing everything up. Right. Well, Falling flat in the face. Absolutely. And I think both of, we both had uh, business partners prior to that kind of didn't mm-hmm. work out. Right. And uh, so we'd been through that divorce, if you will. Um, so we knew what we were looking for in our, uh, our second partner. So that helped kind of having that mindset, but then also, Working with um, uh, working with the leadership coach we worked with uh, re- really just helped kind of make it all make sense and and you know helped us with understanding where we wanted to go and that we were on the same page. A question on the leadership coach. So from start to finish, like how many meetings? How long did this take place for you guys to kind of get in the comfort zone? It's like you know marriage counseling can be three months, whatever it is, but it's like, right. Was it like a one-stop shop? Like, hey, let's meet, and then it's right. done. Four to five months. Okay, yeah, it was a good Catholic wedding, so it was a yeah, long, nice long, long yeah, drawn out space, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we meet, you know, phone calls. We meet in person, talk about things. It was really just like, like he hit on a little earlier, you know, figuring out what our goals were, where we wanted to go with like the business, and make sure those aligned. And then also, you know, when it comes down to or oh, uh, life coach, whatever we call him. Um, he started a couple of business, had multiple partners. He's 77, so long entrepreneurial career, many partners, sold businesses. So, you know, he was able to give a lot of insight and things for us to think about from that perspective. This wasn't so. some 26-year-old kid. It's like, I have a coaching degree. Right. You know? Yeah, that's no, the funny no, no. thing. Life, like, life experience. Right. Yeah, this guy, I mean, it's crazy. Fred Kendrick with TTR Sotheby's International Realty gives us his viewpoint on what's going on in the market and our most recent state of the market address. There's an article from NAR talks about, you know, NAR forecast 4.78 million homes will be sold in 23 which is down 6.8% from 22, which was 5.13. So what do you project? What are your projections, not NAR? What do you think 23 is going to look like here in Washington, D.C.? Well, I think the, you know, I think the potential is really, really good. I mean, because again, coming off of two fantastic years where people were moving just to move. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, the 20, 
22 business was accelerated back into 2020 and 2021. People move then, they're not moving this year. So I think we've got a little bit of time to to just wait that out. People were tired. I mean, people were tired of that market and people had just moved when they weren't planning on moving. So I think there's a little bit of that. We're just waiting for the market to come back. Our Again, our inventory numbers are really, really good. I mean, I think that's what I like locally about, you know, compared to what's going on nationally and again on the West Coast. Our inventory numbers are really, really good. And, you know, people aren't putting houses on the market just to put houses on the market. So our, our inventory is shrinking going, going into the holiday season. So, But do you see that being seasonal? Because, I mean, I see that every year. It's like, you know, we've got sellers and developers calling us. It's like, take it off the week before Christmas and bring it back on MLK weekend after or whatnot. So it's like 30 days mm-hmm. of just taking things off the market. A L- little bit, but but also you have, you know, with the it, the, the rate of sales, the number of sales are just low. The last two or three months have been the lowest in you know, 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, with, with the lower number of sales, even with people taking things off the market, the expectation is the inventory is probably going to grow a little bit, and it hasn't done that. And again, that's a really good sign for a market. We're talking about D.C., and again, Montgomery County, Fairfax, and some of the you know surrounding counties, they're still at the same pace they were. I mean, just not without, with, with just without the frenzy, with the you know the one offer on the new house listing versus the twenty offers on the new house. So, I mean, I think our market locally and just regionally is is really set up to 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 do well for twenty twenty three. It's always said that DC is recession proof. I'm not sure that's completely true, but I I, I think we we will have a better market. Than the other com- the other you know, other parts of the country. Thanks for listening to Keyed In with your hosts, Max and Brent, unlocking the minds of the industry's top real estate professionals. For more information on selling your home, find us online at keyedinpodcast.com. Remember to subscribe to Keyed In on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at keyedinpodcast, at Max, and at Brent E. Jackson. And follow Max on TikTok at Maxwell Rabin underscore properties. Oh, 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 oh